Welcome to Health After Cancer, a podcast for cancer survivors by cancer survivors. I'm Elle Billman, and I'm your host on today's episode. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Natasha Steele. Natasha and I have the privilege of interviewing my friend, Ben Barkley. Ben is a two-time cancer survivor and a former St. Jude hero. Ben and I actually met in college at a Relay for Life event. At this event, we both gave speeches about our experiences as cancer survivors. I remember listening to Ben share his story and wanting to hear more. I'm so excited that today, we'll finally have the opportunity to hear more. With that being said, Ben, thank you so much for being on our show. Happy to be here. Can you start us off by telling us about your story? Sure. So I've had cancer twice. The first time was back when I was seven years old. Started out, actually, I was abroad with my family in Hong Kong visiting family, and I had some headaches. Mm -hmm. We went home early, got it checked out by the pediatrician, um, and pretty soon after, I had a lot of balancing issues Mm -hmm. and so they knew pretty quickly something was wrong Mm -hmm. um and not too soon after um or not long after Mm -hmm. um i was in for i think a 10-hour surgery oh wow to remove a baseball-sized lump from the back of my head and that was metalloblastoma about a month after that after my dad had done tons and tons and tons of research and actually went with my mom to visit St. Jude. Mm-hmm. I started treatment there, and that was about nine months on and off standard of care. Mm-hmm. Um, and I continued to go back for checkups for about 10 years after that. Got it. I've heard a lot about St. Jude, but can you remind me what they do? St. Jude is a children's cancer research hospital based in Memphis, ten- Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I think it started around the 1950s, I don't know the exact year, Mm -hmm. by Danny Thomas, and it's just grown into an institution doing cancer research all over the place. I think something that's really unique about you as a guest on this podcast is that you and I relate in being childhood cancer survivors, but you and Natasha also relate in that you both had adolescent slash young adult cancers as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about your second cancer diagnosis? Mm -hmm. The second diagnosis is glioblastoma. That was found almost on accident. It was found through a routine MRI that was trying to look at my thyroid, and they Mm -hmm. saw something and were like, oh, we should get that checked out. A couple nights following that, I think I actually had a panic attack. Um, around the time I thought maybe it was a seizure, but some doctors told me it was, some Mm. told me it wasn't. And then about two weeks after that, I was in for surgery. Mm -hmm. I think I stayed in the ICU for a day or two following that and Mm -hmm. then went home and started standard of care after that. So standard of care for GBM was six weeks radiation and then about six months of chemo. Do you feel like your first run with cancer prepared you for your second, or has it been a totally different experience? 
the treatment wise it was very different and mentally i was prepared for being nauseous 24 7 um being tired all the time but i was actually able to go back to work about a month through chemo which i thought was very surprising but i was also very happy about Mm -hmm. that i didn't have to go through all that again so l i want to ask you the same but a slightly different question do you think having gone through cancer as a kid and processing so much of it as an adult you feel remotely ready were this to strike again that's a tough question. I can say that I definitely, you know, thought about the fact that once you have cancer, you can certainly get it again. Um, I don't think I would be ready to navigate another cancer. I have processed the cancer that I had quite a bit, but I think the cancer experience would just be so different for me since I would be an adult. Yeah. No, I I I love that you said that. I think you know, in in hearing you reflect on it, one of the really interesting things for me is that my therapist always tells me, you know, fear of cancer recurrence is such a big part of survivorship. And she always tells me like for the people that she's worked with who have had recurrences, it's never their experience is never what they feared or what they anticipated. It's always different. And what a weird thing with cancer that like doing it once doesn't get you like credit or experience to do it again that it's always different like there's so many things in life like having a second kid or you know maybe switching jobs and doing sort of a similar thing where you feel like all right you know I've been around the block I have some expertise you know I can kind of figure this out and I do think cancer is one of those things where it's just it it you know were were it to happen twice for someone their experiences are really different than they had imagined or they feared or they could have anticipated and so I I don't know I mean what did you find when you talked to all of the adult survivors of childhood cancer that you had interviewed as part of your research project like was this something that they were worried about or thinking about is that it was a part of your interviews yeah we did talk about fear of recurrence I think that's such a common theme in survivorship that really in most interviews you have with a survivor, it will come up. We didn't discuss too much about, you know, how they felt about, you know, like how they would fare going through a second um, cancer. So I can't say for certain what the people I interviewed um, shared. I definitely did hear from a lot of them that there's so much strength within the cancer survivorship community and if anybody were to be diagnosed for a second time, um, they know that there are a lot of resources and support out there for them that can give them strength to get through their treatments again. Talking about community and the strength that cancer survivors find within the survivorship community, Ben, can you talk about the community that you're a part of, specifically among other young adults who are diagnosed with glioblastoma. I have a group chat that I've created with some other people who are under 30, also with glioblastoma. The majority of glioblastoma patients are much older, and our group chat name is We Are Warriors. And so, I mean, that goes along with it's not an easy thing to do. You have to be strong to go through all of it. 
when you said the phrase, we have to be strong, it just reminded me when I was a kid, I was really into dinosaurs and I had this like plastic T-Rex and when you pulled down on its jaw, it had a few little taglines and one of them was like, we have to be strong. (laughs) And I loved that toy and I had it with me when I was going through treatment and it was like one of my little mascots. How was it when you, were you working when you were diagnosed the second time? I was. I think I had been at my new job for about six months, Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit over that, when I was diagnosed. Um, My work was awesome about letting me take whatever time off I needed, but I'm also working in San Francisco at a robotics startup. Very cool. So it's great that your employers were, you know, accommodating of you during that time. Um, how how was it like disclosing to them that you had just received a cancer diagnosis and were going to need to take time off? I don't quite remember how quickly I told anyone at work. Mm-hmm. It was definitely before surgery. Mm-hmm. But once I did, it was very quick for them to turn around and make the decision, okay, take whatever time you need, nice. obviously. It's a very important thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, everyone was pretty understanding. I think at some point beyond like two weeks, so two weeks you can say, oh, I was on vacation or something like that. Mm-hmm. At some point, I think we just got on Zoom at some point because it was a bit into the pandemic now. Right. Okay. Um, so I was at one of the all hands meetings and I mm-hmm. said, oh, I have cancer and this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. When I disclosed my own diagnosis to my colleagues, I think there was an element of like, wait a minute, you're a doctor and you're sick? Like that could happen to us? <laughs> like there was, you know, I trained with a lot of people who are in residency and they're in their 20s or early 30s and this concept hasn't hasn't occurred to them yet. Did you almost get the sense that some of your colleagues felt like they were invincible because they were doctors or? I mean, I think you feel invincible when you're young, right? That's that's just a part of youth, which yeah. is so great. <laughs> Speaking of disclosure conversations, I think disclosure conversations within families are so important, especially when they include information learned from genetic testing. Ben, in our previous conversations, you've shared with me that you have a genetic predisposition for cancer. Can you share what it was like talking about your genetic test results with siblings, if you have any? I only have one sibling. I have a sister. Mm -hmm. Our genetic tests were quite different. The results that we Mm -hmm. got were quite different. Mm -hmm. I knew I would have to start doing more year-round testing and monitoring. It wasn't anything I was expecting to affect my life so soon. Mm -hmm. So Elle, what's it like for adult survivors of childhood cancer when it comes to disclosures? So like, for example, did you tell your current employer about your cancer history and like how long did that take or when you applied to medical school? Did you disclose it on your application? What has disclosures looked like for you and people in this community? Now that I'm over 20 years out, I only disclose my cancer history if it's relevant. So when I'm volunteering in the cancer survivorship space, it's very relevant. So I share my story. 
Um, with work, I didn't disclose it to my employer. I just didn't really feel like it was relevant. My boss and I, I've worked for him for two years, and just in getting to know him over time, it's come up because it's such a part of who I am and why I'm interested in going into medicine. So my employer does now know that I'm a cancer survivor, but it's it very naturally came up. In terms of my medical school application, I definitely disclosed it. You know, as I said, being a cancer survivor and growing up around medicine has really shaped why I want to be a physician. And I had to include that in my application to really show why I want to be a physician and how excited I am to continue improving cancer survivorship as a physician in the future. It's awesome to hear that that's your perspective because I feel like there's so much shame when it comes to cancer and a cancer diagnosis. Was that anything, like, did you experience this idea of shame when it came to your cancer history? Was that something you had to work through or has that not been a live issue for you? I definitely worked through shame. Disclosing my cancer survivorship status um, and my willingness to do so really has changed over time. When I was a kid, I liked disclosing it because I got special treatment. <laughs> and then... Wait, wait, what kind of special treatment <laughs> do kids who have cancer get? Please tell me. Oh my gosh, like so much special treatment. Like like um, Make-A-Wish stuff or, yeah, like, yeah, or like, like front of the line or like extra ice cream? Or like what are we talking about here? Yeah, Make-A-Wish, um, you know, people like telling you you're so brave. Yeah. I think when I was a young athlete... I would sometimes get special treatment, especially if we are, there are ever, like, fundraisers around cancer. Yeah. Uh, my story would kind of be, like, front and center. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, if, if my story is being shared, I'm kind of getting special treatment in comparison to another athlete who doesn't have cancer. As a teenager, though, I didn't want to get that special treatment um, because I, I just felt like it was kind of unfair. So I was more ashamed of it then and wouldn't disclose it because I didn't want any special treatment. And I also didn't want to have to manage people's emotions when I told them that I had cancer because a lot of times when people hear that you've had cancer, especially as a child, their immediate reaction is like, I'm so sorry. I can't believe you had to go through that. And at a certain point, like, it's just it's hard to always tell people like no 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 like it's fine i'm past it um so as a teenager i didn't really disclose it as a young adult as i got more and more passionate about survivorship and was able to figure out that i could or realize that i could use my cancer history as a way to improve medicine and improve cancer survivorship I felt much more empowered and that being empowered kind of takes the shame out of it for me. So I'm much more willing to share it because I feel like I'm coming at it from a place of empowerment. Yeah, I want to go back to something you said, which I think is so true, which is, and it sounded like for you, you know, this is something going on at a really critical time where you were like a teenager around this idea of having to manage other people's reactions when you tell them you're a cancer survivor. And as a teenager, really not wanting probably to draw attention to yourself or have, you know, a lot of emotional, emotionally charged conversations with people. But I, I think a lot of survivors will definitely relate to this feeling of, 
you know, they've gone through this experience, they've processed it to some extent, and that processing might look different day to day, minute to minute, hour to hour, but that's their process, right? And then they tell someone, whether it's at work or whether it's a colleague or, you know, a friend, and yeah, the reaction is, I mean, naturally, like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't believe this happened, and are you okay, and how's your health now? And it takes you on this roller coaster that you don't necessarily want to be on with someone. Like, maybe you're having a great day, and you don't feel that bad about it, and then you have to go there emotionally with them. And I do think it creates the sensation of, like, not wanting to talk about it all the time. Or when you do talk about it, like you said, like having to put a, a positive spin, like, oh, yeah, no, I I had cancer as a kid. But it was totally fine. Like, I barely remember it. It was so great. When really, like, it is a, is a serious thing. And, you know, and, and it's like you shouldn't have to be positive about it all the time just so that people won't have this extreme reaction that you then have to, like, make them feel better about, like, every time you meet someone new, et cetera. So, I, I just I want to call out that I think you said something, you know, really wise and applicable to a lot of people, regardless of when they had cancer, what type of cancer they had, where they're at in processing that experience. I'm so glad we're having this conversation about disclosures. And one thing that it's just making me think about is actually in the cancer world, what a luxury it is to be able to disclose things. I think one of the really unique parts of a lot of people's experience is that Things like treatment-induced hair loss can pigeonhole you into a physical identity where people are perceiving you, you know, as someone who stereotypically might look like they just had treatment for cancer. And then your ability to decide whom and when you disclose to really changes. I think something that most cancer survivors can relate to is losing their hair during treatment. I'm curious to <laughs> to open up this conversation with you, Ben, and Natasha as well. Um, what was it like losing hair for both of you? And I guess afterwards, like adjusting to physical appearances or physical physical changes you may um, have because of your cancer history. One of the big words that comes to mind is itchy. <laughs> okay, tell me more. So... When you are losing your hair, it doesn't fall out all at once. So you can't just see it once, sweep it all away. It falls out piece by piece by piece by piece, and you just find it in your pillow every morning. But it <laughs> it uh, it is very itchy, and it gets in everything. Yeah, I never knew if it was just like the way my scalp felt during treatment that was bothering me versus like my actual hair falling out because my scalp was like hypersensitive. But I definitely I, I thought that I was going to be the person whose hair didn't fall out. I was like, oh, it's probably not going to happen to me. <laughs> and in a really interesting way, I was almost more disappointed about my hair than my diagnosis at first because the diagnosis, in some ways, it was still like a little bit theoretical. It was like, okay, I guess, and maybe maybe I will get better, maybe I won't. But my hair was definitely starting to fall out, and it was making me look like a cancer patient, and I was not trying to look like that. Mm -hmm. And so I had this stepwise progression of events related to my hair where first I just kind of cut it shorter and shorter because I thought maybe if it didn't have enough, like as much weight, it would stop falling out as much. So I, and then I shaved the only the undercut, like uh, Ellie Goulding, the punk British rock singer, I thought I would, that would be amazing. And my mom shaved hers too. So the two of us had like total punk rock ponytails. 
I thought that looked kind of cool. But then it just continued to fall out. And instead of like being respectful and falling out symmetrically, it like fell out just from the top of my head first, <laughs> which I thought was particularly insulting. <laughs> like, and then I said, okay, you know, this this situation is not working out with the, my undercut. I'm going to do like a mohawk. And so I had my husband shave my head into a mohawk and I thought it looked super cool and in retrospect, it looked like that little creature in Lord of the Wing, Lord of the Rings, who has like five hairs, and they were going in all different directions. And I was so attached to them, and I'd kind of like gel them up together. And in looking at these photographs, I'm like, what was I thinking? This did not look cool. And then, of course, I fielded all sorts of comments from friends and family, like, oh gosh, I always wanted to shave my head, but I didn't have the courage because I thought it might look weird and take forever to grow back. And Cancer I was like, gave you that courage. Yeah, I was like, oh, thank you. Now I have this opportunity <laughs> to experience what you've always wanted to do but never had the courage for. Awesome. Mm -hmm. And then I had one person be like, well, you can experience life as a man because they're, you know, they have all these like different experiences. You know, you're not going to have all this gender stereotypes and people might mistake you for a man. And I was like, well, I wasn't really like hoping <laughs> for that because like I actually identify as particularly female. And so thanks for that. And... So once I had shaved my head, I actually think it would look the coolest of any of those iterations of attempts at salvaging the inevitable. And so I really embraced the punk rock look. I will say when it started to grow back, I sort of had that experience in reverse because then then it was growing back in ways that were like kind of fluffy, like a baby duck which like I never also <laughs> wanted to be and like everyone wanted to touch my head, which like I didn't love. And then I really looked like a man when I had sort of, yeah. Anyway, that was my experience. I've definitely had people want to touch my head. Yeah, people. I think weird. Once I was in middle school and had actually shaved it all off and it would grow back very slowly, it grew back pretty spiky. Mm -hmm. And so if you touch it, it's like, oh, like a little porcupine. Yeah. <laughs> but I wonder if holding on to your hair is, like, it's one of... The main physical things that you see. So I wonder if it's almost holding on to, oh, I don't actually have cancer. This isn't all real. Because it, it took me a while through radiation to be okay with just shaving it all off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I don't remember any of the itchiness you've described, then, <laughs> so I, I guess I lucked out there. The I, I blessing do, in disguise. Yeah. Um, I do remember not wanting to buzz my head even though it was all falling out and didn't look very good because in my mind I was scared that I'd be mistaken as a boy and I'm like two and a half but I'm, in, I'm two and a half to like five years old so you know you really kind of could easily look like a boy if you're a girl if you don't have hair um but I really should have just buzzed it right from the beginning because it did not look good. I've seen pictures, and I question why my <laughs> parents let me make that decision. Yeah, I will also say that when I started to lose my own hair, someone suggested I make it into a wig because you can make a wig out of your own hair, which is something I didn't know until I was getting chemotherapy. And if you don't have enough, or e even if you have a lot of hair, actually, it's hard to make like a proper wig from one person you need actually mm -hmm. like two or three people so people suggested I could like use some of my husband's hair or I could like my best friend I could have some of her hair and like just led to these really 
bizarre, surreal conversations where I was like, okay, my husband, like, could I wear a wig of my husband's hair? Like, in what other <laughs> world could you even have that conversation? It was so weird. But he has great hair, and I think he would have made a great wig. Ben, I'm so happy we've been able to reconnect after college. And it's been a few years. I think I've been out for three years. You've been out for four years. I'm going back into a lot of school, and I'll be doing that for the next 10 years, maybe. <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear what the what your future plans are. I don't think about it too much, mm-hmm. to be honest. I kind of take life as it comes to me. Mm-hmm. That might sound a little bit cliche, but when you have a diagnosis that is potentially life-ending mm-hmm. and you don't know when that could be, you want to do as much as you possibly can as soon as you possibly can. Yeah. There are times when I've thought about, oh, maybe I'll have a family at some point or I'll try to buy a house, which is probably not possible in San Francisco. <laughs> but yeah. at the moment, I'm focused on going to all the restaurants that I could possibly eat at, enjoy all the food, go traveling, Mm -hmm. see everything that I want to see, Mm -hmm. um, you know, before it's possibly too late. Mm -hmm. What are your next travel plans? I'll be going to Portugal in a couple weeks. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. We've covered so much today. Thank you for being here, Ben. This has been a conversation where I know I've learned a lot and really loved having your perspective and all the things that you bring to the table. And so thanks for making the time to be with us and looking forward to having your voice out there in the world so other people can get the same thing. Thank you so much for having me. I hope a lot of people can get something out of this. Yeah. And Ben, we're going to stay in touch. We're not going to wait for the next <laughs> podcast to reconnect. We can go on a film photography walk. How about yeah, that? Yeah, I love it. In SF. Excellent scenery. Mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. Your hosts today were Al Billman and Natasha Steele. This podcast is produced by the Stanford Medicine EdTech team. Our producer for this episode was Dila Bumgarner. Our creative director is William Botini. Our sound engineer is Bindu Madaba. This episode was edited by Grace Sextro. Our guest today was Ben Barclay. For more resources and information from our hosts and guests, please visit our podcast website at www.healthaftercancer.com. Thank you for listening.